lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Hi, uh, welcome to Lit with Lloyd. Uh, I am your host, Lloyd Russell, uh, and today we have an author that I've known for uh, quite a few years now, but uh, she's done a whole bunch of stuff since the last time uh, that I saw her. Uh, and uh, she's going to tell us some very interesting things about a lot of very interesting subjects. So let's get started. <laughs> Welcome. It is truly great to see you again. Lloyd, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So what is it you want to ask? All these great sub subjects and great topics? <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to start with a couple of softballs first. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, just a, a point of, of notice, uh, you are the second straight author that we've had that is from Chicago. Ah, okay. <laughs> we all left there. <laughs> Were you South Side or? North Side. <laughs> okay. So more Cubs than White Sox. Very definitely, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> How did you end up in the Bay Area? I came out here to go to Stanford University, um, loved the weather, it happened to hit right when Silicon Valley was taking off with the computer technology and uh, decided to stick it out and have been here ever since, so a number of decades. Okay, all right, well let's, let's, let's get into it. Uh, what did you do after you graduated from Stanford? I ended up in the communications industry, actually the cable television industry, when it was beginning its ramp up. Um, so when I started ESPN and WTBS were the only channels, and then we rapidly launched Showtime HBO and eventually got into the, what we call now on-demand, uh, technologies where you could order movies on the boxes. Well, that ended up pushing me right up into the m most um, current computer technology, and I actually switched to the cable company down here uh, in San Jose, Gill Cable at the time, which then got bought by the largest cable operator in the country, and <laughs> then I they wanted to explore using telephone on cable. So all of a sudden I was thrust into the telephone industry and I ended up with a startup company that went public in 1992. Uh, it was the best IPO uh, in initial public offering. I make sure I say that. <laughs> um, in 1992 on Wall Street and uh, stayed with them for a few years and then ended up launching my own consulting company because I had this breadth of knowledge of what was happening. But it was about five, ten years before anyone else could really grasp it. But I saw how it all came together. And so I worked with a lot of large firms, uh, Fortune 100 companies that were on the East Coast mostly that wanted to understand Silicon Valley's technology and uh, worked to help them create some strategic partnerships, investments, um, et cetera, with some of these small small companies. So I always kind of bridge the communication gap, bridge the cultural gap of a lot of varied uh, people and industries and topics. Wow. Okay. So you have had your own consulting company mm -hmm. for, for quite a while. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're still doing the same kinds of things? Yes. It's morphed more into writing now, but uh, marketing with... Um like market, marketing writing for corporate clients I do, um, as well as editing with authors and helping them bring their books to the marketplace through self-publishing. So running their own little business through their book. All right. Let's, let's, let's go on and off on a little bit of a tangent right now with, re with respect to editing uh, other authors' books. Those authors that have publishers, typically, the, especially the larger uh, companies, they'll get editors, you know, that are given to them by the publishing mm -hmm. company. 
I'm assuming that these authors that you're working with are either self-published or with small publishing companies? That's correct. Um, though these days, even the large publishing companies require uh, that you be professionally edited. There's so many people who are writing now because the computer technology has allowed and enabled word processing to be very fast, to, to do document sharing, et cetera, that it's one way to cull the crowd of new authors to say, please make sure you have a professionally edited script before wow. you um, submit it. And so it's not just proofreading. It is really making sure that the story is cohesive, that there is a logic and consistency in the story development or in nonfiction that your facts are there and they've backed up with footnotes, et cetera. All right. So if you're editing a, a nonfiction book, how do you know if the facts are correct? Do you actually have to do research? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I rely on the author. Okay. It is their name on the book, not mine. Um, but I do make sure, for example, that um, if there is a citation or a fact that needs uh, a reference point, I will make sure they know that. I flag it and say, hey, you know, you need to have an updated reference or this, your reference doesn't support your point. Um, so those kinds of logical critiques um, that really are important to a reader. And when you read something, something just doesn't hit you right, you notice it. So I'm a voracious reader, have always been so, and so it's kind of easy for me to see where something is missing. And then having written things myself, I understand as well what can be done to fix it, which is key. A lot of times people can critique, but they don't know how to fix it. And that's really true in fiction, where you say, well, this, this character needs a little bit more oomph, or this character needs to be um, you know, more believable. Other people just say, well, you know, I don't know. I just can't relate to the characters. And so being able to tell an author how to fix it or advise them on tools that they can use to fix it is very important. How did you get into that when you were running a consulting business? Well, I took some time off from consulting. Uh. Uh, I started painting my house and doing gardening and got bored out of my mind um, and decided I wanted to do something. I had this great experience. I was the only woman in the room uh, with you know, all these male-dominated industries. I mean, literally, and I was also the youngest. And I said, well, I'm sure someone wants to hear about that. So I decided to write my first book, uh, Private Offerings. Here it is. Um, Private Offerings, which was really about... Uh, very similar to my experience being a woman in Silicon Valley going through an IPO. Um, and in the course of that, I met a local writer who was writing a book, it's in here somewhere, uh, Maddie's <laughs> Game. And he wanted help formulating it um, and bringing it to life. And it w it's a story about um, a baseball uh, I read it. Yeah, you read it. I think, okay. you, I think you must have given it to I me. I must have given it to you. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And he went to Amazon, because Amazon has a service where they will do the editing, and the editor there said, you must get rid of all the profanity, and it's not believable. And he has spent time with Mickey Mantle in the training camps. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, Mickey Mantle's a really big baseball person, and he was furious that he had paid the money. Um, and they were telling me he had to change his book. He goes, this is my book, this is my story, it's gonna have my name. And I said, well, tell you what, I will make sure it's what you want, professionally ready to go. Uh, but I'm gonna charge you a little bit because you, <laughs> you just paid Amazon. <laughs> so all of a sudden I realized, hmm, maybe I have something here. And I met, uh, the next person I met uh, wanted to self-publish his own book. And I said, well, let me, let me just show you how I would edit the first chapter. And he loved it. Um, he said, you, you, 
can understand how to adapt to my style and no other editor I've worked with because he'd done a lot of work. Um, he published another book. He'd, he'd written a lot of articles for um, like various, various op-ed pieces. He said, no other editor has ever tried to match my style and you did. So I've all of a sudden realized I had a knack for this. And so it's wow. been more word of mouth and referrals and kind of me being willing to help nascent authors, you know, just give them some, kind of some free advice. And then they realize they need help and they're willing to, to work with me to do that. Have you done a, a second book for any of the authors? Yes, quite a few. Um, this one, in fact, has a new one out today. It's called, it's on uh, heart disease and hypertension. So he's doing a series. Um, this one, I've done six of his nonfiction. Wow. Uh, this one, I'm going to do a second one. And this one has a sequel. Ah. So yes, <laughs> in uh, addition to mine. <laughs> and, and you're still doing this in, in conjunction with your own consulting. Yes. I'm still working with um, corporate clients mostly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I have so many questions for each thing we've talked about, okay. but I'm afraid we won't get to everything if I don't move along. Okay. Tell us exactly what you are consulting about. What is your what is your profession there with that? Um, mostly, it's marketing communications. Um, so I have a unique blend of understanding marketing, and the niche I ended up with in is minerals and metals. Um, I started out wanting to talk about California and the gold rush mentality of, of uh, Silicon Valley and how the history um, of California was kind of shaped by this idealism and this drive and ambition and, and going for the, the rainbow as opposed to really a very pragmatic approach, which Chicago is full of pragmatists, right? You know, they, they just do their thing. Um, and to me, it was very striking to, to have that that vision that just perpetuated 150 years later. Well, that threw me into writing about a gold mine and then about uh, rare earths because of China's influence. And then I was approached to do a nonfiction book on rare earths and critical minerals. And I ended up being um, the expert because no one in this country is really talking about it or writing about it. Journalists don't understand it. Um, and I've been writing about it now for a number of years. And so as now the country is moving to recognize that if we want you know, electric vehicles, we need to have lithium and we need copper for our electric grid and we need rare earths to, to make magnets and to have MRIs and all these, these different technologies that we rely on, I'm one of the few people who actually write about it. So that is my, my corporate has been more in that regard, but from a very much a business point of view. Um, so people who are trying to uh, potentially bring their companies public eventually, or want to attract investment into their company. That's kind of, I understand both sides of the equation. Okay, well, I've got the, the whole China and cell phone thing uh, down a little ways, but, I, I've been chomping at the bit or champing at the bit. I never knew which one it was. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> 80 to 1 odds. What do we want to do? <laughs> if you saw it in a, in a book, would you leave it alone, which, no matter which one of the two it is? No, I would look it up and make sure it's, it's fixed. And then we'd have a debate. <laughs> uh, okay, so tell us about... I mean, this is this is so fascinating. Tell us about what we get from China for our cell phones and the availability of the pieces and, and, and what's happening. That, I, we're, we're all going to be 
super interested to hear this. Okay, so let me start with the basic premise. Um, I got involved because I saw that Silicon Valley tech companies, which had become more and more apps, uh, you had the Facebook, the social media, the Google software. And when I grew up in Silicon Valley, it was all the hardware companies, right? And we had moved all of our manufacturing offshore. And in 2010, Japan was faced in a situation where China stopped exporting rare earth elements, which are, if you think of your periodic table of elements, there are 17 tiny little ones way buried down that you never studied in high school because they're fairly new in terms of having applicability to today's life. Um, they ba China basically tanked Japan's manufacturing sector. And I kept on waiting for our local media to cover it. Uh, and in 2013, they still were not talking about the risk that we had, that we had no second source for this, that we were 100% reliant on China. So I decided to write a sequel to Private Offerings, which was Rare Metal, uh, which really just moved us into a situation where China, fictionally, uh, decided to stop uh, exporting the rare earths, which they mine as a byproduct of iron ore, um, to the US and what that did to Silicon Valley tech companies, what that did to the defense, because this is used in submarines and night vision goggles and all of our national security as well. Um, so that launched me, as I said, into, <laughs> into this big time. So in terms of answering your question, these, these little minerals, um, they have unique properties to handle heat and uh, very, very um, nuanced functions that more and more of our technologies as they've become miniaturized and when they're in their tiny, tiny form, they exhibit huge amounts of heat, right? And so you need something that can handle that. So these minerals have been used and developed um, in, through the metallurgy field. Uh, to do all these different things, to perform all these different functions that are necessary. But because we exported our manufacturing, outsourced our, our manufacturing to China, they're the experts in it. They're the ones who are still mining iron ore for their steel industry and their aluminum industry. And these are so t tiny and we use so few of them, it's not cost effective to mine them around the world. It's only cost effective when it's a byproduct of iron or copper, some of the major, major metals. So where we are now is that uh, the U.S. is 100% import dependent on different countries for about uh, 15 metals. I can't remember the exact number. It comes out every year. And 35 of them are considered critical to our national defense or our national economy. Um, so the USGS, the Biden administration currently, the Department of Energy, the Department of Interior, everyone's realizing that we cannot move forward a lot of these initiatives for using high tech um, unless we have a solution for this. And I don't think anyone anticipated COVID would interrupt our supply chains. This was fictional. It was purposeful. But I've always been saying for the last few years that China isn't required to export anything to us, even though that we may have a trade agreement, even though uh, through globalization it may make economic good sense for them to do so. We can't require them to do that. That's slavery, right? So all of a sudden COVID hits and they are shut down still in Shanghai and Beijing. Our supply chains are interrupted. And all of a sudden we're realizing that we do not have a source for these minerals and these metals actually that we need for our components and our equipment to work. 
And, and is it is it isolated on cell phones or is it a, oh, no. oh, a whole bunch oh, of stuff? Oh, pretty much everything. Cars, uh, your own car currently, not even the, the fancier cars, uh, but the current cars use like uh, tons of, of metal that that are used in your windows going up and down. Every single one of your chips uses it. The semiconductor shortage was partly because we couldn't get some of the, uh, I think it was the gallium arsenide. Uh, anything that is steel coated, um, aluminum coated, it requires it. Phones are just one thing that everyone can relate to. Can you live without your smartphone? And everyone you know, these days, no. You know, kids don't even know what life is without it. Yeah. Um, but it's much broader. It's aerospace. It is um, submarines. It is pretty much everything in your life. MRI machines, right? Wow. Magnets. Magnets use metals. Okay. I want to continue on this discussion. Okay. Uh, we got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Thank you to the City of Montessorino for their continued support of KCAT Public Media. The City of Montessorino has enabled KCAT to inspire, educate, entertain, and inform our community through the magic of television and digital media for over 38 years. Thank you. Okay, and we are back talking with Ann Bridges about components of lots of things that we have that we need that we're not getting okay when you came to the book club our book club back in december of 2015 you were already talking about the fact that china was kind of had a monopoly mm -hmm. on the the components we needed for at least the cell phones at that time mm -hmm. but nothing has happened since then i mean not really not really it's crazy well it, it's going to take some willpower. The the people who people who perceive mining is always going to be dirty are not looking at the current day mining issues. Uh, Canada and Australia make mining like ten percent, fifteen percent of their economies. They have resources. They use it to uh, put forward, you know, and contribute to their GDP. They're good jobs, and you can do it with an environmental sensitivity. The problem we have in this country is uh, we have a very active media that loves showing the pictures of yellow rivers and you know a huge open pit which were done mostly before the environmental laws went into effect. Once we had the EPA and we put we implemented a series of regulations, there has been one of hundreds of mines that has had any problems. So they really do know how to do it. They know how to, and in fact the plans now are to reclaim mines while they're doing it. So if they open up an old mine, not only do they have to fix the old problems, then they mine it for whatever they want currently and then they have to put it back to something that's wonderful, like a parkland or, you know, put give it back to the indigenous tribes. That's some of the, the work that's being done. So it's very similar to um, the whole fossil fuel debate. We can say we don't like it, but our lives depend on it. So at some point you have to make those kinds of priority decisions. So what are we going to do moving forward in order to not have to rely on China and the other countries that are providing, as you said, 100% of the components for 
many different industries. There are two things that are happening. One is we're trying to cut deals with other countries like Australia, Mexico, Canada. I mean, we have the, the um, what's it called these days? It used to be NAFTA, but the, the Canada-Mexico-US yeah, yeah, yeah. um, relationship. Huh. Between those three countries, it, it covers most of the minerals that actually exist. Um, the smart scientists, and I am not a geologist, for those of you who figured out that I'm stumbling over some of this, um, <laughs> the smart scientists are finding new ways to use existing metals. They're finding substitutes, okay. for example, with cobalt. Cobalt, cobalt is known uh, to be using child labor in the De um, Democratic Con uh, Republic of Congo. And child labor, labor, it's really yucky. And so everyone's been trying to figure out a way to move away from cobalt for the lithium ion batteries, and they are starting to do so. Um, if you make the form factor smaller, then you don't need as many of them. And the recycling is something in the future, but you have to have a critical mass. First, you have to have a ton to be able to recycle to get that 100 pounds to get that one pound of the critical mineral you're looking for. So until we have the 100 tons, that you can talk about recycling, but it's not cost-effective to do it. Okay. Uh, I have one kind of, of question that's just sort of random. Okay. Uh, do you have any thoughts on these 5G towers that are popping up all over the place? <laughs> Uh, my husband has a ringing in his ear that he claims is from every time a new 5G tower comes up. <laughs> he says, this is a problem. Um, I do know that the patents that China has been uh, filing for all these rare earths um, are hugely involved in the newest technologies. And Huawei is one of the biggies ones for 5G. Um, they know what they're doing in terms of metal and metallurgy. And our universities aren't even graduating the kind of caliber of PhD um, scientists that we need. Huh. I mean, Stanford's geo department, for, just as an example, focuses on water and environment. Um, so if that's one of the top universities in the country and we need metallurgy, yeah, yeah, you know, hey, who's going to do that? So you have a couple, you know, I think we have three in this country. Um, wow. So. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, an off the wall question. Yes. yes, it was. Yes. It might be the only one tonight, but I'm making no promises. <laughs> I come to expect it from you. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the fact that you have written a whole bunch of books. I, I mean, I mean let's, I, you know, I think it's great with your, with your business and the editing and all that, but let's talk about your stuff. You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but be a little bit more specific on how you got started on your first book and how it got published. Okay, so my first book, um, as I said, it was me trying to share my experiences as a woman in Silicon Valley corporate. That was right when STEM was starting to get legs and they were saying, hey, where are all the women in Silicon Valley? We should have them in the, the CEO suites. We should have them on board of directors. So I realized I had a very unique perspective. So I decided to write a fictional account. I went, oh, women would love to read this. This is great. Um, what I learned after the fact is women aren't very interested in reading business fiction. Men are. Um, so, <laughs> so I have a great male fan club and not a whole bunch of women. But it was an authentic story, which publishers liked. And uh, I decided first to, to um, self-publish it, actually, as an ebook. And then I, because ebooks were all taking off, I mean, that was a big thing. Amazon was, was pushing the Kindle and everyone was getting an e-reader. But uh, it seemed like 75% of the people I talked to said, oh, I only read print. So I networked through the San Jose Chamber of Commerce and said, who locally knows a publisher? And I ended up with you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you forgot about that. <laughs> Who said, hey, I don't know anything about publishers, but these guys just showed up in the local bookstore. Anyway, um, it was a Southern California uh, startup publisher, an independent who wanted to give voice to California voices. You know, most of the publishing industry is on the East Coast and dominated by New York. And I think it's gotten a little bit better. Washington, Florida, and LA, I think, are, are starting to become centers. But at the time, uh, Southern California was unique. And so they contracted to um, take private offerings, its sequel, which was already written, which is why I was talking about it in 2015, mm-hmm. and um, a third book, Kit's Mind, which is a historical novel about California. And That's Gold Rush. Right? Uh-huh. Kids, yeah. Kids yeah. Mine? Kids I think mine. I read mm-hmm. that too. Yeah. yeah, you probably did. So um, we were all ready to go, and then uh, they went out of business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. And I looked just the other day, in fact, I think I'm the only author who has continued to write and continued to publish, uh, unfortunately. It's it's very gut-wrenching to have your publisher just disappear. I mean, all yeah. your support, um, any plans or dreams that you had to continue writing, you're like starting over again. So I decided to pick myself up and just self-publish because I'd started that. That way, that was not intimidating to me. Were you able to get all your rights back to your books? I had negotiated that in advance. Yes, I'd gotten some good advice from some um, from local writers who said, "Make sure you always retain the rights." Great. So I did that and um, just kept on writing. Um, Actually, I think the the fourth one I wrote was uh, Mercury's Fake Message, and then this this one and then I did an ebook um, in conjunction <laughs> with my role-playing game guy we did a, a short story so that has been my writing um, that's been published I keep on think waiting for the inspiration to do another one but I haven't hit it yet so how many have you written and how many are fiction and nonfiction one two three f- four fiction the Mercury's fake message is a blend, and that's why I hesitate. It's 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 a novella, uh-huh. uh, the first half, and it's to teach critical thinking. It's really um, to show you what kind of bias you as a reader bring to your reading. So the first half is the novella, and the second half is explaining mm. why it is the way it is. Sounds way over my head. <laughs> no, it's very simple. It's very, very simple, but it's it shocked some people. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> In terms of how biased they are. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, so what, what else have you written that's nonfiction? Um, so I co-authored this. And then this is ground. Okay, so groundbreaking is um, it's wonderful. It's very timely. This is about um, the situation the country is in terms of um, critical minerals. And Dr. Ned Mamula approached me to write a easy to read general audience book on why minerals are important to our life. And uh, so we got Steve Moore. If you know who he is, he's the um, he was uh, nominated for the Fed under President Trump. Um, he's a he's a pretty well known economist. Got a number of very good um, endorsements within the industry of people who understand kind of the risk we face as a country. Um, and this came out at the end of 2018. We were all ready to do pr- uh, promotion, and <laughs> COVID hit. <laughs> So, wow. dead for two years. <laughs> and, and, and it's also self-published. 
yes, it was self-published. We had tried to go um, with a, a couple publishers, and they sell mostly nonfiction through um, major media, right? If you're well-known, like Steve Moore, he can get his name on Fox or whomever. Um, or if you do get speaking engagements or if you go to conventions. And uh, they just looked at it and said, we don't know anything about mining. We don't have a mining industry in this country. Who's going to be interested in it? Yeah. So uh, Ned was convinced. He said, it's it's got a ways to go. And he lives in D.C. and he um, uses this as a policy platform to educate Congress, to educate the media, to educate a lot of people on on our exposures. Okay, tell us how how you promote your books using being self-published. Yeah, it's tough. Um, a lot of people aren't very comfortable talking about themselves because I've been a salesperson and in marketing, um, I kind of knew the tricks. So I have been plugging away uh, since 2014 at being on social media, talking to local media, um, getting referrals, um, doing blog posts. I have my own website. I do interviews like this. <laughs> um, basically, it's a constant promotional plug, um, pretty much day in and day out. It, it's not eight hours a day, but but you kind of have to always be engaged and showing how your books are relevant, how you as a person are an interesting author to invite on or to interview or to talk about your books a little bit more. And not everyone's interested in that. Yeah. So you basically divide your time between your consulting business and, and editing other mm -hmm. authors? Is mm -hmm. that? Yes. Uh, unless you have, as you said, you know, a, a strong urge to write something. Right. Then I'd probably say, okay, give me a couple months. But I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, and have you have you not tried to to go take it any of these to a publisher since the time when? Balcony 7 went out of business? No, I haven't because most um, publishers aren't interested in a book um, if it's already been published. They may be interested in a sequel, but they're not interested in, in buying the rights. If, if I could say, here, I'm, I'm writing five new books, and they say, oh, okay, we're interested in those, and then they want to buy old books, they may do that. You see that occasionally. But the publishing industry is struggling just like any other, the communications and media. There aren't as many readers. Um, podcasts are uh, phenomenal. And audiobooks, which is a whole different kind of production. In other words, you don't need an editor. If you write a good book and you're willing to record it yourself and you know how to use the technical editing tools, they don't need me. And maybe to make sure the story is right, but in terms of proofreading and make sure that every single, you know, I is dotted and T is crossed. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any books that are that are uh, audio? I don't. Um, this guy, Ben Weiner, he's a you know, he's a venture capitalist in Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I get him from all everywhere. Um, he did this in audiobook because he listens to him and he loved it. It was a very interesting experience to to work with him on that. Um, so yeah, you choose a voice. Um, you have to find someone who, who can, in Jerusalem, he had to find someone who could speak um, Hebrew well and yeah, pronounce yeah. the street names. And, you know, it was kind of interesting. Well, Josh, who shared Balcony 7 with you, but was fortunate enough to get at least one children's book published mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. uh, they went out of business. Um, he has a very good friend who is an audiobook narrator. Ah. Uh, so if that ever comes up, I would love uh, to talk to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, you can let me know and, and I'll uh, put you in touch. Yeah. We had him 
um, at the book club a few months back. And it's a pretty fascinating process. I mean, it is. And a lot of people are listening to books. They don't have the time to read, but they do have the time to listen. And so it's a it's a different market. And I think that that is really the way technology is moving. Um, you, I don't like listening to books. I like reading, but that's yeah. because that's how I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there are people who don't read very well, but they listen just fine. Joni and I got used to doing some some um, audio books before the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, when we had friends all through the Bay Area, and we heard some great books. Mm-hmm. It was it became really a fun thing for us. But of course, you know those that haven't moved (laughs) we haven't seen much of them in recent times but uh, are any of your books in ebook form they're all in ebook form all books are in ebook form yeah that's an easy one and I came out with a uh, joint Silicon Valley novel um, in hardcover as well for people some people really wanted in hardcover so it's both softcover and hardcover Um, it's the two private offerings in rare metal together ah okay that's cool yeah I think the one thing about ebooks, I mean audiobooks as well, is it's a little bit more shareable. Um, I hear people say I can listen to it in the car with my husband, wife, and so it's it's more like watching TV together. It's listening to a book together. You can stop it and talk, and um, so it's a different experience, I think, than the very personal, private, um, self-contained yeah. reading. The thing I like about it is that there are lots of people who don't have the time or can't take the time to read, uh, sit and read a book. Mm-hmm. But a good friend of ours, I mean, she walks all over the place, so she's listening while she's walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's I think it's greatly expanded the number of people who can be literary. Can, yes. I, I, I love that. Fiction especially. Nonfiction is harder because um, you have to deal with charts. Uh-huh. A lot of time, like in this this book, um, there's actually a chart. He's 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 solving a murder mystery, and I'm gonna here. See, there's a chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Which is he's describing how the character did a chart on the whiteboard, right? Okay, well that's great, and you want that. Uh, to try to translate this in audio, it was hysterical. I, I asked him. I said, "You need to, t-, you know." And I listened to that one chapter, and they read the columns across, and they read it down. And if you're good at visualizing yeah. that, that's fine. But a lot of nonfiction where you have references and mm, doesn't work very well. I guess the other thing that happens with audiobooks is they have um, PDF files that you can also download that become the footnotes or or whatever technical yeah, document yeah. you want to yeah. do as part of that. You just okay. learn how to do that. All right, Um, I think we will stop there. We'll do a little bit of trivia. And interestingly enough, the fact that you combined two books into one is is the subject of a trivia, Ah. (laughs) a piece of trivia about Agatha Christie. She holds the record for the biggest book. She's written 72, Mm -hmm. but her publisher took just the Miss Marple books Put them into one, 15, over 15 pounds it weighed, <laughs> 4,000 pages, and it cost at that time $1,500. Wow. She also ate apples while she was bathing for inspiration when she was in the bathtub. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Go figure. Uh, Lewis Carroll, which I had never heard, was a major stutterer. Hmm. But not when he was talking to children. He did not stutter when talking to children. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And Charles Dickens was just a little bit OCD. (laughs) 
He combed his hair at least 20 times a day. And whenever he stayed at the hotel, he immediately <laughs> rearranged the furniture. furniture. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he didn't travel very often. <laughs> or uh, I'm sure he had a decreasing uh, list of hotels that would yes. take him in. Yeah. One in London, one in Paris. One in London, one in Paris. <laughs> right, it was the best times, worst times. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, well, I think that's all we've got. Um, okay. This was fantastic. Great. It was every bit as fascinating as I knew it would be. And I learned a bunch of stuff today, too. Uh, great. I'm glad to, to have come here and talked about not only myself, but all these wonderful authors. And many of them are local. Um, I don't know how much of this audience um, has is just, re, just here in Silicon Valley, but there are a lot of really good authors um, who write fiction. Silicon Valley, unfortunately, is known more for its engineering and tech, tech books. Um, but there are some good authors who, are, who probably are self-published because there's just not a good way to get out you know except for that yeah these days. Yeah. yeah well maybe i can get a list from you and, sure. and uh, spread the word or my webpage has them all actually yeah, right my homepage. and that is authorandbridges.wordpress.com or if you want to just do a search silicon valley and bridges that works really well you'll find it i think that's how i found it that's usually how people <laughs> find it it's a lot easier <laughs> all right well thank you for being here i really appreciate it uh and uh we're done people see you next time You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org slash radio.